As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle, the Royal Pavilion and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions, including the British Museum, Tate, the V&A and many more. Membership is just £73 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere 45 and for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fav when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Just go to artfund.org great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life like a new job, anniversary or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a thousand original artworks from everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And and don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass on the door or by using the code or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm very excited to say that my guest today is the brilliant Emma Lewis, a curator in international art here at Tate Modern, where we are very excitingly recording today. One of the most exciting young curators working at Tate right now, Emma's recent curatorial projects include the major exhibitions on Wolfgang Tillmans and Modigliani, which were both on view back in 2017. Emma is also the highly acclaimed writer and author of Isms, Understanding Photography, and a contributor to the exhibition catalogues for Radical Eye, Modernist Photography from the Sir Elton John Collection, and Shape of Light, A Hundred Years of Photography and Abstract Art. Specialising in photography, Emma is a curator for the museum's International Photography Collection, which is fast becoming one of the most diverse and important collections worldwide. But the reason why we are visiting Emma at Tate Modern today is because she is the co-curator of one of the most exciting and unmissable exhibitions in London right now, the first UK retrospective of the great Dora Maar, the photographer, painter and poet, also known for her photo montages, whose extensive career spanned for almost the entirety of the 20th century, and who was the artist, 
we are very excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome, Emma. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me. So firstly, congratulations. This exhibition has been such a hit. I've already been three times and each time I go, I feel that I'm discovering something new or I'm discovering a kind of aspect of a certain work in a completely different light. When I first came to the show a couple of months ago, what struck me first was the amount of great work, but also the sheer vastness of her career. I think that's what really is interesting for people to see. This was the first time I'd ever actually seen any of her work in the flesh. And other than reproductions of work such as Entitled, which actually opens the exhibition, I'd never really seen any other work by her, which is actually kind of shocking. So just briefly, for those who might be new to her work, could you describe Dora Maar's career and her work just to give some context for us? Yeah, sure. I think your experience isn't unique at all. Certainly, Duramar is an artist who is known by name, but perhaps the extent of her work is really, really little known mm. um, and underrecognized. So she was born in 1907 in Paris to a Croatian father who was an architect and a French mother who owned a fashion boutique. And she pursued a career first as a painter, then studied decorative arts, and then she turned to photography and had an incredibly prolific decade during the 1930s working as a photographer on commissions on personal projects as well and then by the end of the 1930s had turned back to painting and that was really the medium that she pursued until the 1990s amazing no I mean it's just incredible to see you know someone work through so many different mediums in such a diverse way when was the first time you actually saw her work I think I had been aware of her surrealist photographs as a student um, Mm. of the history of art and I certainly remember a work that stood out for me was one called the pretender Um, from 1936 which Mm. was exhibited in many of the surrealist exhibitions during the 30s and that work is a an exemplar of her photo montage she has layered a photograph of a boy who is bent backwards in this very strange position over the top of a re-photographed image of vaults at the palace of Versailles yeah and she's inverted both images she's retouched over the windows of the building so they look as if they're closed the eyes of the boy are kind of obscured so they look as if they're rolling back into his head and it's a deeply strange disturbing image and it really really stayed with me but I have to say that is one of the few images of Dora Mars that I knew I had no idea as to the extent of her commercial work I really didn't know anything about the depth of her painting to be honest even that she had an extensive career in Mm -hmm. painting her biography I think became the stuff of kind of myth and of anecdote really after she withdrew from Paris after the Second World War and so it's been a fascinating process of rediscovery for me personally as well a dream project. So when you were you know assigned to curate an exhibition of Dora Maar's work what was your reaction to that were you just completely excited? Yeah I mean it's such an honour and a privilege I should say as well that I'm a co-curator and I'm curating the tape presentation but this is the work of many hands the idea for the exhibition was actually that of Amanda Maddox uh, associate curator at the Getty about a decade ago now and so she's been working on it for a very long time coinciding with her research was the fact that the Pompidou acquired a huge archive of Dora Maar's photographs and negatives and so uh, when those two institutions joined together to begin thinking about the exhibition it became a project that's become the most comprehensive survey of Dora Maar's work their research is built on that of 
the biographer Victoria Cambalia, who got to know Dora Maar in the 1980s. Again, one of the very, very few people to really recognize the importance of Dora Maar. And her scholarship has been integral to the project as well. Because Dora Maar, she passed away in 1997. And it's kind of since then that she's had this renaissance where people have just started to look. Why do you think that now is the important time? Following her death in 1997, there were estate sales of her personal archive. Wow, okay. um, and, and that included work by her, her personal uh, possessions, and also work by Picasso and other artists that she had in her collection. And naturally, that's when her work began to enter the market. Yeah. Interest in her work has gained steadily since then, but certainly even then it was her photographs and photo montage that were the most appealing to collectors. And then there's been this growing understanding and and really only recently scholarship into her paintings. Incredible. Okay, so as you mentioned earlier, Dora Maar was born in 1907 in Paris. Tell me about her childhood. Where did she grow up? Did she move around much? She said had quite a peripatetic childhood because her father was an architect and he was working in Buenos Aires. The family moved between Paris and Buenos Aires. And in fact, she took some of her earliest photographs on the boat during her journeys oh as, a gosh, very, wow. as a young teenager. Yeah. So she had a camera from a young age. Her and her mother settled in Paris from the age of 13. Her father would join them later. And it was really as a teenager that she expressed to her parents that she wanted to become a painter. And they said something which I think will resonate with people, you know, aspiring artists today, which is that, you know, it's a very precarious career choice and you should think about something more reliable. Absolutely. And so she (laughs) went on to study the decorative arts and the graphic arts. And she then took up photography. She took classes in photography. And her talent and aptitude for the medium was identified by a couple of very influential people. There was the art critic Marcel Zahar and there was the photographer and the editor, Emmanuel Suget. And at this time, of course, it's a very exciting moment for photography. Um, There's lots more professional opportunities being created. Editors want to commission photography. Advertisers want to have photographs illustrate their work rather than hand-drawn illustrations. And so there's opportunities there for her. But what's so interesting as well is because just seeing the exhibition, the amount of work that she created, her prolific career, actually... It's incredible to think that she was this really young woman being so Mm. successful. And actually, do you think because photography at that time in the kind of 1920s, 30s was such a new medium, it almost didn't have this patriarchal hierarchy Mm -hmm. that you had to get into, unlike something like painting, which was seen as something that was maybe more of a kind of man's world. Was photography offered to women much more back in the day? I mean, there have always been women studio photographers right from the inception of photography. For whatever reason, photography was seen as a thing that polite ladies um, could do as a pastime Mm. and then eventually a a career perhaps. (laughs) Um, But I think the distinction or the hierarchies that existed during Mars time was that if you wanted to be taken seriously as an artist, it wouldn't be photography that you pursued because that um, that hierarchy that in some ways still exists um, is still just about there for photography and painting was very, very much in existence at the time that she entered the workforce really. But it's true that there was so much change and because of this flourishing of the printed press, there were new opportunities for women like her to seize. She set up a studio with the film set designer Pierre Keffer at the very beginning of the 1930s and they had a partnership that lasted about four years. We don't know the exact nature of the collaboration but it seems very likely given Keffer's background that he would have designed the lighting and she took the photographs. And was that something that was normal to kind of set up a studio with someone? It was. I think the specifics of the way in which they were working as I said isn't known to us in great detail but the collaboration element was very normal Um, Mm. and it was certainly very normal for artists who were working at the real vanguard of photography at the time to have a commercial application to their practice as well Um, so that's something that 
Ma is not unusual in doing, but her eye is very distinct. Totally. I mean, the commercial work, I couldn't believe was commercial work because it's so surreal and some of the most incredible works ever. I mean, immediately in, in that second room, the commercial photograph of the shampoo advert mm. with this woman's hair, which is essentially kind of, I mean, she must be bending down and her hair is kind of going over her head, but it's almost as if it's this surreal sculpture or something. It's incredible. Yeah, there's, I mean, something that we really wanted to convey, which we hopefully have done through the structure of the exhibition, is that Ma was working on her surrealist photographs and photo montage at the same time as she's working on her commercial photography. And the techniques that you can see in the two different rooms apply across both. So, for example, she's using staging in very unusual ways. She's using lighting and shadows in, in very surprising and kind of to almost a very gothic effect sometimes. And she's reusing often her own images as well. And so all of these different techniques she's using to appeal to the consumer and often a female consumer, as That's well so as to be shown in much more kind of niche setting, if you like, of the surrealist exhibitions and publications. And where would these kind of commercial photographs be seen in magazines or somewhere? Many of her commercial uh, commissions were for clients so there are people like Ombre Solaire or Petrol Han. She also photographed for many uh, women's magazines, beauty magazines and also because uh, commercial photography or photography was being recognised as an important medium, you would have exhibitions of the most exciting examples of commercial photography. And her work circulating in those contexts as well, in trade journals. One of my favourite little corners of the exhibition depicts incredible photographs of Essia, just as straight photographs. Yeah. But we also see the context in which they're reproduced. So one is Form New, so a publication dedicated to great new examples of new photography. And another one is an erotic magazine yeah where her photographs appear by texts written by others so you can see that the photograph I mean and this is one of the reasons why I love working with photography in general yeah. is that it circulates in so many different contexts mm. you know you, a work can be cropped in a different way and the image changes entirely it reaches totally different audiences in at different times so that's one of the again one of the real revelations of working with her Totally. And also one of the works that, I mean, had been promoted quite a lot, which I saw, I think I first saw on Tate's Instagram and was completely kind of actually confused about kind of what it was or what it was for, was this incredible image called The Years Lie in Wait for You. Am I right? Yeah, one of the best titles. (laughs) (laughs) And that is actually this incredible photograph of this woman's face kind of looking into the future, but then there's a spider's web Mm. with the spider in front of it. And it's for this kind of anti-aging cream. We believe so from the product title that we haven't been able to locate where the image was reproduced. Mm. But yeah, we believe it's an anti-aging cream. And so the woman who is depicted in the photograph is Ma's very close friend, Nushelwad, who was um, a poet and an artist and who married one of the leading figures in surrealism of the 30s, the poet Paul Elouard, who was also a great friend of Mars yeah and for Mar depicting her friends in her commercial work wasn't uncommon yeah but yeah that is a really striking image and a fantastic example of the way in which she used montage yeah. um, to completely transform and create something absolutely eye-catching and I think it's amazing that it's as, as compelling an image now in 2020 yes, as it was <laughs> in uh, 1936 and also you know kind of looking at these women they seem in a way, they don't really seem dated at all. Like you said, it's very kind of compelling to us, maybe because actually she really creates this idea of the modern woman. Do you think that's what she was kind of getting at? 
they're not so much objectified in a way. No, I mean, definitely the fact that it's a woman photographing a woman is, mm. is relevant. It's important to note, I think, that the context in which Mars working is very specific in terms of women's place in the workforce and yeah. in terms of women's rights and the way in which women could move through the world. I mean, in 1930s, women in France didn't have the vote. They didn't gain the vote oh until 1944. God. Wow. At the same time, Mar enters the workforce at a time that it's post-World War One. Yeah. The labor force is completely different. Yeah. But church and state are both encouraging women back into the home to reproduce. Another contradiction, again, is that in the media, this idea of the modern woman is being promoted, so the very kind of liberated woman. And she was a figure who was in some ways aspirational, but in some ways threatening, mm. and also not somebody who was considered perhaps acceptable in polite society as well. So there's, there's tons and tons of contradictions, and Mars working right in that context. I think it was also interesting for me, personally thinking how to approach this side of curating an exhibition of a woman artist, is to think, uh, what were her opportunities and privileges, as well as her limitations as a woman? So the fact that she was in a comfortable enough financial position to, say, have a camera at a very young yes. age. The fact that her family background afforded her to travel. Yeah. And yet at the same time, as I said, women are restricted in so many ways. Mm. And so I think those contradictions, we've hopefully woven them through the exhibition in a way that you can get a sense of the broader context, social and political, in which she's working. Yeah. And how that kind of uh, shines through in some of her photographs. Absolutely, because I'm thinking about, you know, just before these works in the 1930s, she's also, you know, it's also the Great Depression. And I don't know how much that affected Paris at the time, but definitely mm -hmm. London and America and probably the sort of global economic circuit in a way. Mm. And I mean, did that affect her at all? Or did it influence her? Because I know that she was quite interested in left-wing politics, for example. Yeah, she was very politically engaged and mm. she signed her name and, and participated in a number of left-wing groups, she yeah. signed her name to political tracts. And in fact, that's how she became close to the Surrealist Circle. And absolutely, the political context, sorry, in Paris at that time is really important to her work and a marked contrast to what's going on inside the studio. Yeah. So there's the, the rise of the far right. And we've included in the film a little montage which shows the events in France in 1934. Mm. So there's riots in February of that year by the extreme right. And then there's counter demonstrations by the left. And um, the film also just shows some context in terms of the severe economic depression as well and the living conditions experienced by many. And in fact, it was around this time from 1933 onwards that Ma went to an area known as La Zone on the outskirts of Paris and photographed what was kind of undeveloped housing that was home to about 40,000 Parisians at yeah. the time. And so we think that in part, her motivation for photographing those uh, circumstances was her politics. No, it's so interesting. And also, I think her street photography is fascinating as well. I mean, like you say, she goes to the outskirts of Paris, but she also travels to Barcelona and London, which is really interesting. This is also in 1933 and 1934 when she's making the commercial works. It's interesting that all of that is happening within these kind of just few years or at the same time to be working across such a kind of broad spectrum of subject matter. But the Barcelona works and the London works, I mean, for me, that street photography is just fascinating because it's an insight to just people. And I think 
actually, you know, you have people like Dorothea Lang or, you know, someone like Diane Arbus, who is working a couple of decades later. But actually, during that Great Depression time in Europe, I've never really seen anyone document it so much. And how was that as a woman to kind of go out there? Was that quite radical at that time? Because these are quite, you know, exposing images of men as well. It was radical, perhaps in the sense that, well, for anyone on the street to see somebody walking around with a camera would be relatively unusual because handheld portable cameras were relatively new. Mm. Um, But Ma herself, when she was asked in the 1990s, you know, what it was like to travel alone as a woman, she said something like, it was the 1930s, not the 1800s. Um, (laughs) And I was in my 20s. (laughs) And we don't know why she travelled to London or who with. Indeed, she travelled with anyone. It's very likely that she travelled alone. But yeah, I think there's a restlessness at the time, which is really interesting. A restlessness, but at the same time, an accomplishment in all of the registers in which she's working. Yeah. And I don't think that's uh, really unique I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to being in our early 20s and trying to figure out what we're doing and trying our hand at a few different things and having something that pays the bills and something that is perhaps more personally interesting to us. And then sometimes there's overlap between the two. Yeah, I think there's definitely nice resonances with what she was doing and and the way in which she still worked today. And do you think with this street photography, she set out to do something in particular? Because in a way, they're all quite surreal as well. They're, you can tell that she's working at the same time as her surreal work, for example, with her fascination with blind people in particular, mm. or this kind of interest in people asleep. There is mm. this kind of surreal aspect or her street photography. Do you think that that was an intention? And also, what was the reaction to this work? Did she exhibit it as well? So I think that the impression that I get is that she was exploring new subject matter. Mm. I think the political side of things would certainly have added to her motivation, but I don't think it was the sole motivation. I do think, yeah, she was, as you said, I was drawn to certain motifs and yeah. themes that she then explored more fully in her very surrealist work. Mm. And certainly in Barcelona especially, you see things like the interest in depicting the blind. Yeah. And that's something that photographers had taken as a subject, again, almost since the inception of photography. Oh, really? um, and I think for Ma, it was a, yeah, taking the camera onto the streets was something that was, um, it was a novelty and it was a way of exploring in an, with a freedom that she didn't have necessarily in the studio when she's working for a client. Some of the photographs that Dora Maher made during the 1930s were included in an exhibition of documents of social life, it was called, by the Association of Revolutionary Artists and Writers. Oh, and one critic at the time noted that it was Dora Maher along with people like Man Ray that were making revolutionary work. Yeah. Uh, The fact that he named her among those photographers is significant, I think, because it tells us a little bit about the way in which the works are received. Yeah. The fact that she was showing a side of society in a way that was considered to be radical. But she was definitely accepted by the most avant-garde group of artists at the time and not only accepted but was really integral and important in the exhibitions that they were organizing the surrealist was so transformative in terms of the art world in paris um, from the 1930s onwards and they recognize the importance of Mars' work within that. I mean, we could see her commercial work. It's so inherently surreal. Was she kind of intending it to be surreal, to kind of be associated with the surrealists, or do you think she just kind of fell into surrealism in a way? I think what we see in her commercial work, in terms of her use of photomontage, combining images in unexpected ways and so on, is somebody who's really just pushing the boundaries of the medium of photography. Yeah. I don't think she was necessarily associating it with a particular movement. It was really just her thinking of them as her friends perhaps yeah. that were working in this way and equally you know the surrealists at first when the movement was founded didn't really 
have a place for photography because they associated with photography with something that was very straight that was a, a reproduction of reality oh, wow. and so for them the way to understand a place for photography within their movement was to show images in surprising contexts and in, in unusual juxtapositions for example yeah or to combine images in unexpected ways i.e through a photo montage yeah and so that's the potential and the the really the revelation that they saw in Marx's work if we think about the surrealists as individuals who are interested in the unconscious mind mm. and subconscious desires and indeed in desire itself and then it's in Marx's work that they began to find ways to access that and it's significant that there were very few photographers included in the major surrealist exhibitions throughout the 1930s. And it was that work, The Pretender, that we spoke about earlier that, that was, was in included. All six. That was included. So was a work called A Portrait of Ubu, 1936. See, so this is a a work that I just can't get my head around and actually since looking it up online yeah. <laughs> it seems like no one else since she made it in like 1936 or something no one else has been able to kind of get their head around what this creature is I mean can you kind of describe it to us yeah so what you can see in Portrait of Vubu is a real close-up of um a curled up figure uh, in the it seems to be in the fetal position and it's believed to be an armadillo fetus although Ma never disclosed what the subject was she wanted to retain its mystery and I think when it was published and exhibited during the 30s people thought that it might be some kind of plant or vegetable and that isn't a montage or anything that's a straight photograph but it's the crop and the close-up and just the sheer weirdness of the subject matter that makes it so extraordinary as an image and probably we're reacting to it now in the same way that people did in the 30s just completely surprised and confused by it yeah it's totally bizarre as well because also there's so much dramatism happening in it i mean actually when i first saw it i thought it might even be some kind of theatrical character or something the title comes from um alfred jerry's play um, oh, and ubu okay. is a figure who really intrigued the surrealists yeah this kind of grotesque figure and so that much we know but definitely the aura of mystique around the image and around the subject matter was important to Ma. Totally. And what I guess is really interesting as well for me is that all her works, I mean, maybe this was kind of typical of the time, but there's this incredible work in the commercial room, actually, that is of a sort of sculpture of a hand mm -hmm. and it's holding a mirror and the mirror has a moon in it. Mm. And it's just so compelling. And I love this quote by Paul Eluard, who must have been a contemporary of her. Am I yes, right in thinking yeah. that? Who says that Dora was the woman who holds every image in her hands. And mm. it, there is this almost tactility to her work in a way there's this smallness of it and this kind of almost objects of desire and unknown and mysticism I think that work with the mirror in the hand with the moon almost mm. sums up her career in a way yeah, it's a really beautiful quote by somebody that was very very close to her and you know Paul Eluard was an amazing poet so yeah. it really does summarize the way in which Dora Maar pushed and manipulated and had such incredible imagination with every yes image that she did and I think that shines through in the commercial work, in her street photography, in her surrealist work, of course, and but also in her painting. And I kind of hate to mention his name, but it is very important that we do talk about Picasso because he obviously was a big part of her life. So in 1935, everything sort of changed in a way. She started getting with Picasso. This was a kind of very tricky time for him that she entered his life. Am I right in thinking that? How did that kind of come about? Were they just in the same circles? Yeah, that's right. They were in the same circles. They were um, most likely introduced by Eloir. Um, there's different yeah. accounts of how they met. Dora said that they met at a press screening of a film for which she was the onset photographer. Their relationship lasted about eight years. Yeah. And when I was tasked with writing about Mar and Picasso's years together for the catalogue, 
I thought, oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to approach this subject? Because mm. what can there possibly be to say <laughs> that yeah. hasn't really been said? And I think actually the process of working on the Mar and Picasso section of the exhibition and for the catalogue was one of the most interesting for me because it turns out there is quite a lot that's new to say about the relationship. Yeah. And so it wasn't really the romantic side of their relationship that we're interested in showing at all. It was the real specifics of what happened during their time together. So and how they influence and each how other they well. influence yeah. yeah and how they influence one another. Just the fact that you know they were together for this period in which you know they lived through the bombing of Guernica, the Second World War, yeah. and her movement back to painting as well, which is really important. So, in the exhibition, what we set out to do is to show the way in which Picasso was influenced by photography, yeah, and in particular by Mars darkroom technique, and the fact that she goes back to painting at this time. And what you see in the exhibition are a series of what they call cliché verts that Dora Mar and Picasso made together. And, you know, they meet at a point where her career is really flying. You know, she's exhibiting totally, internationally. Totally. She has built a successful studio practice, commercial practice. She's travelled. She has all of this under her belt and his um, reputation is completely sealed. Everybody knows who Picasso is. He knows that he's going to have, for example, a catalogue raisonné and he has Mar photograph all of his works for his catalogue raisonné. But he's also coming out of a period, if not of depression, then of certainly a kind of crisis or difficulty. His marriage had broken down. He'd withdrawn from painting and from sculpture. And so he then begins to make these very experimental prints with Mars. So there's these nice and quite interesting dynamics, I think. Yeah, no, you can really tell that. And also, it's just interesting because, you know, when I was doing the research for this and just generally reading articles on this exhibition, I mean, so much of it was pegged to Picasso. And it's... And it's really sad, actually, because when you see that exhibition, she just totally shines. I mean, she's just this incredible photographer, collage, her photo montage. And then, and then you get to this incredible point where it's as though she just takes a turn in her career. Mm. But then what I found so interesting was this incredible painting called The Conversation, which, I mean, you tell us about mm. it because it's a fantastic work, but there's so much tension going on. And why is that? So the painting, The Conversation, was made in January 1937 by Dora Mar, not by Picasso, as has been <laughs> written oh, about. Oh, really? It's made by Dora Mar. That's And so it depicts... Um, Dora Mar back to back with Marie Therese Walter, who was who was the mother of Picasso's daughter Maya, okay. and somebody that Picasso kept very close during his relationship. I think one of the most interesting problems, really, in creating an exhibition like this, and in creating many exhibitions is how much biography to include yes is it necessary to give the details of what's going on in the terms of the romantic and personal life of these artists and I don't think we had to because we were able to learn that wonderful painting from the Picasso family in fact because and no one's really even seen it before no no and I actually had seen reproductions of this painting and thought it was fantastic because it's so loaded and because it meant that it was a painting that could allow the artists to do the talking about this period yeah. in their life and not have to rely on secondary sources and, yeah, and I think for me it really sets off the whole room because it gives you some information about the difficulty of Mars' personal life. Yeah, increasingly I felt like it'd be disingenuous not to note the cruelty, frankly, and the difficulty that yes. she endured. And it's not something you want to focus on, but it's an acknowledgement of it, and it, most importantly, it's through the artist's work. Yeah, as I mentioned. I mean, what I find interesting about this work is actually just how brilliant it is, and affirming her as such a fantastic painter. This work is opposite Picasso's cliché verts, and I think that, I don't know, there's just this incredible, and I don't know if this was intended by you, but this centrepiece of the exhibition, but also what was going on, it's as though she's kind of trapped mm. in this man's world, who was so prolific and, you know, 
so famous for his time and actually what that would also do to you. I mean, it's similar to the way that, you know, someone like Frida Kahlo, although she was a young artist at the time, marrying someone like Diego Rivera, actually marrying these kind of art stars of your day, what does that actually do to you as an artist and also therefore change the lens of how you're then seen? But also then we move on to the next room and it's Guernica. Mm, yeah. And it seems with this, so if anyone's listening, if they haven't been to the exhibition, you have to have to listen to this incredible conversation between Dora Maher and Francis Morris, who's yes. a former guest. And I mean, what happens there? Why does she then photograph Guernica? So by the end of the 1930s, Dora Maher has turned back to painting. And yeah. it's likely that she had always wanted to go back to painting. We know that she had initially wanted to be a painter rather than a photographer. Yeah. Um, it's likely that to be taken seriously as an artist, she felt she had to pursue painting. Another theory is that Picasso didn't want anybody close to him to be better than him than anything i.e. photography these are all theories but i think for me the fact that she had always wanted to be a painter yeah. and she'd achieved so much in photography and we know she's restless seems like she was just curious about pursuing painting um and so this time she isn't photographing except to document picasso's complete work and archive and then at the time that he begins work on his commission for the spanish pavilion which is the work guernica she receives a commission from the editor of caid art christian oh, zervos okay. to document what we call the metamorphosis of of the painting and that's mm. because in 1935 Picasso had said he thought it'd be interesting to document the metamorphosis of a work. And so she does that. And the thing that I found really interesting, though, in, in coming to write about this and then to display it was to understand a little bit more about what's going on in the studio at the time. Yeah. So there are three fantastic negatives in the Pompidou archive, which show Dora and Picasso in front of Guernica. We can also see a canvas by her propped up in front of Guernica which tells us that she was painting in the studio at the same time as oh, he was working wow. on Guernica which is quite extraordinary because yeah. that's unprecedented for somebody like Picasso and again tells us a little bit about the dynamic but the interview with Francis was really a gift to listen to because they discussed the process of more photographing Guernica but there's also some information there which shines a completely new light um, <laughs> excuse the pun on um, the way in which the dynamic is painters yes. and because Dora said to Francis that there's something else I'd like to add which is that I put an electric lamp in a painting first and he took the idea from me and for those of you who know Guernica or who come to see the exhibition and can see photographs of the work in progress you can see in the top center of the canvas there is indeed an electric lamp and there have been many many theories about this object and why Picasso chose to use it in metamorphoses from a sun into an eye into a lamp and so I had this piece of information and I was wondering which canvas it could be referring to. And then we find the conversation and then I yes. found that it was dated to January 1937 yeah. when he began making work on Guernica in May 1937. So it's a small detail, but it's, again, it's significant and it just adds texture and information. And do you think that, I mean, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, the amount of articles that have been kind of picked up by Picasso mm. and, you know, this patriarchal term, the muse, which we shouldn't mm. always say, but do you think she actually ever found herself being cast as that and that how do you think that made her fail or do you think that it's just the way that history has been written that often female companions of male artists are seen as muses I think both and yeah. she was astute and self-aware enough to know that her history would be written yeah and that she also told her biographer Victoria Combalia she believed that she would recognize as an artist in her own right at some point but there was a reason why she really resisted and refused interviews towards the end of her life because people would only ask about Picasso. Wow. And so that is one of the reasons why she declined talking to so many people. So 
after 1945-1946, at the same time that her relationship does break down with Picasso, but also we have to remember that, you know, World War II has just ended. She actually stops exhibiting. She doesn't stop making work, Mm -hmm. but she stops exhibiting. And also she moves to the south of France and away from Paris and away from the circle. Do you think that was because, you know, just the nature of what was happening with art in Paris, it did just kind of disperse. Lots of people went to New York. Things weren't as buzzing as they were. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there were so many changes at this time. So she exhibits into the end of the 1950s and she has important solo and joint exhibitions in Paris and elsewhere in Europe, including in London. But definitely the shape of her world completely changes as it does for many many people at the time it's the second world war her relationship as you say has broken down her mother died very suddenly her best friend Nichelois dies very suddenly her father's had to leave uh, France other friends have gone into exile so it's a very difficult time for her but it's also the beginning of a really interesting new chapter in her career because she spends more and more time in the south of France and she paints the landscape and there's a real opening up of her painting at this time whereas in Paris during the occupation she'd been painting still lives and some landscapes but the still lives tend to be very kind of claustrophobic and somber in tone if you compare that with the work that she begins to make in the south of France there's a real difference in terms of the gesture of the brush strokes the palette just the whole mood and atmosphere is totally different it is it's like a different artist almost it is yeah Um, and do you think she was in a different headspace or do you think it was just you know a natural progression of what she was doing I think again both Uh, but I think I can certainly relate I'm sure many people can the difference of being in the claustrophobia and the buzz and oppression sometimes of a city and remember also we're talking about Paris during the occupation so something I, I can't even imagine what that would be like to live through compared to you know the freedom and beauty of being in the rural countryside you do totally see that i mean if you look at the kind of tenseness of the conversation and this just boxed in claustrophobia of of it compared to those works the landscapes it is just like oh my gosh these canvases are breathing air again i mean there there is this light and there's nature yeah but then what's so interesting which is again complete surprise i mean this exhibition is just complete surprise surprise after another but at the end in the 1980s she comes back to photography yeah i mean what sparks that She told um, Victoria that the street wasn't interesting to her anymore. So although she wanted to photograph, and we think that she had been carrying her camera around Minerb, she wasn't so interested in daily life. She's much more interested in what she can create in the darkroom from her imagination. And something that we all found really fascinating, and the exhibition is structured to emphasise this, is that there's lots of similarities between what she's doing in the darkroom in the 1980s and the mark-making techniques she develops in the mid-50s. And they again connect to the cliché there that she taught Picasso to make. So if we talk about distinguishing uh, technical factors in her work, but also the mark-making that comes out um, from the mid-1930s onwards, yeah. and that's something that is sustained. And I think once you notice that in the exhibition, and yeah. it's perhaps one of the great things about having to go through the exhibition to turn back on yourself yes and no, I think it's actually really good you can see some of these similarities and the techniques you see in the 1980s are really really similar yeah so it shows this kind of return to the archive and working into the image in a really detailed way no it's, it's completely fascinating and how do you think this exhibition specifically has changed the outlook on Dora Maar and how people have seen her I mean, wonderfully, there's now recognition of her contribution to the surrealist movement and the important place that she held within it. And 
people have felt that, as I did when I came to the material, that the commercial work, the street photographs, especially a real revelation. Yeah. And, you know, we're very happy with as well with the way that the audiences have received the exhibition. I think it's true, as you say, that Picasso has been written about. But I, what I love to see in how an exhibition is received are the kind of narratives and counter narratives yeah. um, that are built up around it. So I've seen great articles about the way that, I don't know, editors or sub editors might drop Picasso into a title as clickbait for example yes true and so all of <laughs> all of these kind of really great conversations come out which have been fascinating to observe and I think the exhibition has felt timely for people I think it's fantastic I mean I just was completely overwhelmed with how many new works sort of coming back to what I was saying my introduction how many new works I was exposed mm. to and actually just affirming her as one of the greatest artists who was around at the 20th century and I'm just I want to see more I mean I literally just want to find out more but Emma thank you so much and as this is the Great Women Artists podcast we always ask our guest if Dora Maher was sitting in this room at Tate Modern right now and you could say something to her or ask her something what would it be you know I'd ask her more questions about that lamp because um, I I have a little bit of information and I want to keep exploring more about their dialogue as painters she gave us a kind of little nugget to work with and I'd love to know more amazing thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for having me Thank you all so much for listening to the 14th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the amazing Emma Lewis on Dora Maher. It was such an honour to interview Emma, having been so inspired by the exhibition, which is on view until the 15th of March this year. It's so good to be back for season two, and I'm so excited for all our upcoming guests. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford, and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review and a rating as it helps people find us. And of course... Thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my favourite activities and thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £73 per year and for those under 30, it's £45. Just go to artfund.org forward slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over 1,000 original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com.